Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dina Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the Project Purple Podcast studio. I've got a, a special guest with us, a friend of mine, someone I've known for, well, it's got to be a couple years, maybe more than that, maybe four years almost. But Dr. James Farrell, who comes to us all the way from Yale, I say all the way, I can probably step outside the building <laughs> and throw a rock. <laughs> That's how close we are to Yale. Uh, but Dr. James Farrell, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. No, my pleasure. Yeah, great to be with you, Dino. And as I said, we've known each other. And, and I was trying to think as I said that, we met originally at the APA meeting in Boston, I think four years ago, it's going to be four years this year, I believe. Right. I think it was like 2016, maybe. I think that's right. I think your, your, your memory is, uh, is, is better than mine. So I moved back from, uh, California. We had been in California, UCLA for, uh, the best part of 12 years. Uh, and we moved here, uh, to Connecticut in 2013. Uh, middle yeah. of snowstorms, remember well. Yeah. Uh, really kind of to, uh, to work on, uh, to continue some of the work we had started in pancreas and early detection. Um, and then I think subsequent to that, uh, we did. We met at an American Pancreatic Association meeting up in Boston. Um, I think some of our team was with us at that time. And some of my former colleagues from UCLA had made the trip. It was a very a great evening, a very productive evening, as we can tell. And uh, then began the discussion, right, about, uh, yeah. you know, what could we do here locally in Connecticut? What could we be doing locally in the Northeast? What could we be doing, doing globally? Um, and so, yeah, we've been in, in constant contact ever since. It's been great. Yeah, and, and I, we got to give credit where credit is due. A good friend of mine and a, and a very good friend of yours, I think you've known her longer than I have, possibly, Aggie Hirschberg, who runs the Hirschberg Foundation, I think made the introduction, quite honestly. So I got I got to give Aggie where credit is due uh, because I know she's done a tremendous amount of work over at UCLA where you started there and then went to Yale. And as we always do with our guests, James, I think this is a great segue. Um, we always give our guests an opportunity to share their background. And, you know, you just kind of teased a little bit, you know, with your experience at UCLA and then over to Yale where you currently are. But as I always tell our guests, this is your opportunity to share with our audience your background. And you can go as far back as you want or you can stay <laughs> as high level as you want and then we'll go from there. You know, I will, um, I'll, I'll keep it pancreatic centric for a absolutely, while. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, and tell you that, you know, I started my medical training in, in Ireland, believe it or not, and uh, very early on moved to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore on the medical side. Um, and Hopkins has had a great tradition in the pancreas sphere, both in surgery and pathology and in medicine has made kind of significant contributions over the years. And so first got a taste of pancreas, um, while a medical resident down in Baltimore. Subsequent to that, I ended up moving for general GI fellowship training and advanced endoscopic training uh, up to Mass General in Boston. And again, Boston just being another great center uh, for pancreatic disease. And at the time, uh, there was a very strong uh, both surgical group as well as a gastroenterology group involved with pancreatic diseases. And so really kind of was getting exposed to not just the, frankly, the diseases, which are challenging, but 
fascinating and very kind of broad spectrum at the same time. You know, but also getting exposed to kind of people who were, you know, very passionate about not just their kind of day-to-day jobs and stuff, but the bigger picture, the diseases they were challenged with uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, we all kind of make decisions in life for, for these sorts of reasons. And I think being exposed to a variety of people, uh, both on the surgical side, even also on the GI side, radiology, you think it. I mean, one of the beauties of, uh, one of the, the, I guess we'll call it beauties, but one of the upsides of working in the pancreatic sphere, and, you know, there's not many upsides when it comes to disease itself, but is that it's a multidisciplinary disease insofar as that there's many, many disciplines involved, um, you know, between surgery and radiology and medicine and gastrology and genetics and all, and oncology. Uh, and being exposed to those people, I think, was kind of um, a great driver for me. So my first job after that was to move to California. And, you know, in, in typical kind of East Coast, West Coast mentality, people not really knowing what was going on in the West Coast, I actually followed my girlfriend out. I, I went for love, as they say. I really wasn't. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't chasing the pancreas to the west coast by any means. But I, but I landed on my my feet out there, and I ended up working with a, another, a really for the first time, you know, in the trenches with just a fantastic group uh, of both surgeons uh, in the pancreatic sphere and gastroenterologists and oncologists. And so, you know, our, our mutual friend Aggie was right there in the mix of that. And so she was uh, a major patient advocate and fundraiser uh, for pancreatic disease in that. And so there was the evolution of a very kind of cohesive collegial group within pancreatic disease, primarily on a clinical level, so taking care of patients um, at, at all stages of disease, including early detection, but really also then involving into the realization that you know, research needed to be done. We needed to push some sort of frontier along. And so she was very instrumental in obviously funding that and bringing the group together and so on and so forth. So we were there for a total of about uh, 12 years or so. Uh, I couldn't have, I couldn't have picked a better way to kind of start a faculty and then ultimately decided to come back to the Northeast. My wife's family are from the Boston area. And so we, we moved back here in 2013. And really, kind of, I would say, again, not really being overly conscientious about it, but just, you know, again, feel like kind of landed landed on my feet. Uh, Yale has a tremendous clinical prowess when it comes to pancreatic disease. It's a great surgical program, a great interventional endoscopy program, a great medical oncology program with some of the kind of the largest uh, patient enrollment numbers for clinical trials in pancreatic cancer in the country, not the, in the world. I mean, just a very, uh, very prominent program. It also has tremendous strengths um, in research and in, in really the basic science, the understanding of diseases, you know, both at a kind of an immune level. And those are two critical issues, both kind of a patient volume and patient experience, as well as cutting-edge, novel pancreatic research or research that can be applied to pancreatic disease that's really needed. And so without being, without overthinking it, you know, uh, coming back to the Northeast primarily for family reasons and realizing, oh, this is a great opportunity. And, uh, and so far so good. So we have had, uh, the opportunity to try and coalesce some of the clinical services in pancreatic disease under certain umbrellas. We've developed multidisciplinary conferences where we sit around and discuss patients, 
uh, with pancreatic disease primarily. Um, we've also had the opportunity to kind of collaborate with the medical oncologist in pushing forward precision medicine ideas and concepts, but also that kind of dovetail into uh, into research and novel aspects of research. Uh, but but one thing I'm really you know proud of is our ability to kind of push forward the early detection mantra uh, and set up some of the studies and bring some of the studies that were already open elsewhere, get involved with new groups that are pushing studies and one of them being pre-seed and so on and so forth. So so I hope that brings me up to date, but it's, uh, it's been a, a kind of a nice journey and an inspiring journey and uh, the best is yet to come, I hope. The best is yet to come. Well, we hope so. I, I got two questions here from listening to that story and, and I didn't realize uh, you started here, I think you may have mentioned the, the Boston connection, um, but I didn't know you started yeah. on the East Coast and then made out to the West Coast and then I, naturally you've come back. But question that I ask all our clinicians that are in this space, and full disclosure, you're a, a, a gastro internist, GI specialist, you're not an oncologist. Yeah. Correct. But why pancreatic cancer? You do so much work in this space. And I and you know, I, we've had a couple of specialists on clinicians, surgeons, doctors, and we've talked about this GI specialty, which is I think the the best I, I giggle here because what I'm going to say the best thing I've heard is they say from the mouth to, you know from the front to the back yeah you know basically yeah. covers the GI spectrum right so it, yeah. for, for the people who don't understand that you know you're talking about the throat the intestines anything that you know down below well, anything internally you know that follows that track so there's so much that the GI scope kind of encompasses. But I'm always curious on why pancreatic cancer. So why stop off with the pancreas? Yeah. No, I think it's a great. I think it's a. I think it's a great question, and it's one that um, it's really multifactorial. There's, I mean, like anything in life, there's many reasons why we end up where we are. Correct. Be it personal or financial or or professional, and for me in the pancreas, it's probably uh, a mixture. Um, I just thought I was very lucky that I did get exposed without really me being conscious. I did think I was going to become a transplant liver doctor. That's where I, that's where I thought I was going. Um, and then I got exposed to these people along the way who seemed to be very well balanced, very happy people, very passionate. Um, and some of them, not all of them, were somehow involved with pancreatic disease. So I think of the surgical group down at Hopkins. I think of uh, some of the interventional gastroenterologists at Mass General, some of the surgeons. And so it wasn't like kind of an overnight switch. It was like, oh, this is, this is, this is the group we're hanging out with. Uh, when you take it and look back on it, certain themes come out. One is, one is that, you know, we all like to be challenged. And the pancreas is challenging on several, on several fronts, as you know, from a intellectual level, there's an incredible spectrum of diseases. Uh, opportunities, knowledge that needs to be gained, experience that needs to be gained. And there's not just uh, pancreatic disease, there's a whole world of uh, benign pancreatic disease, pancreatitis, and so on and so forth. They all interplay with each other, and they all have experts and key opinion leaders around the world. And so from that point of view, I, you know, I was always interested in pathology. I was always interested in radiology. I was always interested in molecular biology. And the area is, is just ripe with that. So from an intellectual perspective, you know, there was, there was a, a mass evolution of our understanding of disease of the pancreas, particularly pancreatic cancer, 
while I was in training. And it was a very exciting thing to do. And I even noticed when I was, um, when I was leaving UCLA, kind of one of the, the final things we did was just reflect on my 10 years there with my colleagues. And it was the difference between an article that we had written when I arrived about pancreatic disease versus an article that I had written, a review article that we had written uh, as I was leaving, and the amount of knowledge that we had gleaned in those 10 or 12 years. And so very, very, very satisfying. To get it to the next level, though, I think, you know, one of the issues that comes back is, from a patient point of view, when we see what uh, pancreatic disease means for an individual patient, and when you're a physician looking at that, there's a whole spectrum. Frankly, there are days and nights days when we can reassure people that what's been found on their pancreas on a CT scan that was done is really, yeah, it's unfortunate it's there, but it's not going to be a problem for you, this particular patient, anytime soon. So the whole spectrum to the other side where you know that when some abnormality, specific abnormality is found in the pancreas, uh, that it's a very serious day in the life of that patient, in the life-altering day. And um, that brings with it kind of uh, a roller coaster level of emotion because, you know, on one hand, yeah, we're talking about the, the breadth of diseases and the spectrum and the knowledge, but on the other hand, we're talking about the real world and real patients and their families and so on and so forth. So I think that's been another part over the years and then getting to know some of these patients, getting to know some of their families, and yes, it's, it, it is very, very challenging. Uh, yes, some of the progress has not been as fast as other progress. Um, but seeing, getting feedback from patients, being able to help patients, understanding that, you know, the more of the nuanced information that we have and know so that we can personalize care for individual patients, the better it is, the more satisfying it is, frankly, on a physician level. But also to be able to tell patients that, look, we got this. We know what this is about. We have a lot of experience in this. We've seen this. This is not the first day that we've seen this. And we are going to give you the best opportunities available, some of them that are not great, uh, to help you through this. So it really is a multifactorial answer to why, why pancreas. Um, are there days that you, as a human being, kind of take a step back and go, oh, man, I wish I was... You know, should I just be dealing with stomach ulcers or a bit of reflux esophagitis? Wouldn't that make it a better day? And there are days like that. I think everybody has them, uh, not just in GI when dealing with uh, serious pancreatic diseases, you know, medical oncology as well, uh, because the treatment options are not great. And even in surgery, because, again, the, the vast majority of patients coming for surgical evaluation um, aren't eligible for surgery. Uh, but those are the sorts of, sorts of reasons, and it's not just um, it's not, it's not just disease, not just uh, the colleagues in that field, which is, you know, a, a great, a great bunch of colleagues, uh, throughout the country and frankly throughout the world who are dedicated to these diseases, but also over time getting to know patients, getting to know, uh, patients' families, getting to know groups like yourself, uh, patient advocacy and research support and say, this is a real team effort. And God knows, you know, there's no better time than now to be part of a team. Well, thank you for, you know, throwing us into that group and, and for the motivation. I, I mean, I will make an observation here and I'm in this field. So, you know, it, it, when I hear you say it, it hits home for me, what you just said. And, and, you know, and I don't know if our audience will, will get this unless they, they know the kind of the background, but the names you mentioned or the places that you mentioned, I should say, you know, Hopkins, 
which has been traditionally been a leader in the pancreas field. MGH, when you think of Boston, you know, they've got such a robust team there and they've got some amazing surgeons, amazing, amazing clinic. And then you talk about UCLA, you know, on the West Coast, which is one of the premier centers and, and you know, all the work that's being done there for the pancreas. You know, so it's kind of like the, not to put words in your mouth, but from what I heard, James, was, you know, you're around all of it. Like it's, you're eating and breathing and sleeping pancreas. It's kind of like a no brainer in a way that that's the direction you're going to go and, and focus. Um, and given that, you know, you're around some amazing people, as, as they always say, what's the analogy? You're always the six closest people to you in your, in your circle is who you are and what you become. So if you're constantly around, you know, six amazing people in the pancreas space, odds are you're probably going to stay in that pancreas space. And we're happy you did. Yeah. I mean, no, and, and it's very much, it, there's certainly a, a, a draw like that and people that I've, there's definitely a component of it, people that I've met over the years, uh, they've become very great friends, uh, great mentors, and, and a great source of inspiration. And it has been uh, very satisfying. It doesn't take away from the fact that we still have a lot of work to do, yeah, uh, but it's, it's been interesting to kind of, you know, you know watch it, appreciate it. Um, but everybody, you kind of feel like, uh, being fortunate that everybody that I bumped into along the way, like brings their A game to work every day of the, of the, of the week. Um, and maybe in other subspecialties, they're, they're all bringing their A game as well. I just really feel it's pancreas and, and it's nice. Yeah, absolutely. I, just one last question on your background. And I always ask this uh, to, from all our clinicians, was there a mentor that you can look back and you know, one person that just really inspired you or just kind of led you or did something along your journey to put you on this journey that you're on currently? Um, I'm, I'm always afraid to answer that because there were so many. Uh, and then I'm going to fear like someone's going to call me up and say, wait a second. I thought I was um, <clears throat> you know, each, each way along the way, there, I mean, there really have just been people in situations, um, you know, Hopkins was really a case uh, about excellence and love of clinical care and love of medicine and love of research and, uh, you know, getting to know the early detection group down there. Um, you know, I was very close with uh, Mike Doggins. Both he and I actually yep. moved to the U.S. from Ireland at roughly the same time. Uh, and Mimi Canto and then obviously the large surgical group uh, with John Cameron down there and getting to know some of those people. Um you know, when it was up in, in, in Boston, uh, the group of interventional endoscopists I worked with, and there's many of us who, who counter on this. So Bill Brugge was really one of the masters of endoscopic ultrasound, which is kind of an essential tool. Uh, Peter Kelsey was also in the mix up there. And many of us were just, we feel like we were incredibly fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and to really learn from these people at a time when things were taking off. Uh, in that. And again, I, as I, I said, I, I kind of followed my heart to Los Angeles. I had no idea uh, what I was getting myself into. I didn't know I didn't know any of the names. I barely even knew where, where the institution was. And as luck would have it, I got introduced to a really premier surgical group in pancreas with Howard Reber, but also like the Joe Hines is there and Tim Donahue um, and James Tomlinson. And just it's just a fantastic time. So it's been a lot. It's been a lot of people, I think, in kind of a role model uh, and it's to some degree kind of a mentorship. I mean, we stay in touch with everybody, maybe not as often as we would like to. We check in on everybody. Um, but it is, 
you know, I, I, now that you bring it up and I feel like I'm talking more about it than I was planning to talk about it, um, <laughs> it, 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 it turns out that it's like a critically important issue in life. And I kind of, when I interview uh, GI fellows coming in uh, for positions in GI fellowship training, I only ask them two questions. And one of them is to ask them, like, well, who are your role models and mentors? Because it is a driving factor. It does make people want to kind of figure out what direction they're going in, how they're going to get there, and what they're going to try and do to get it. And it is critically important that we, you know, I've had, I feel like I've had the benefit of good role models and good mentorship. And I try my best. I don't, by no means do I think I'm perfect, but I certainly try my best to realize that it's important for people coming up to have role models and mentors. And not just in medicine, but frankly, everything. Um, because it's sometimes it isn't clear, you know, in, in your kind of formative years and you don't know which direction to go on. It's nice to be able to say, well, I want to be like that person. They, they seem pretty happy. They seem pretty content with their career and their life. Maybe I'll, I'll try and, you know, I'll, I'll try and mimic them for a while and life they learn out. Sorry, a little bit more pop psychology there than, uh, than <laughs> I thought. But anyway, so, so, uh, so, so those are the things. It, it really is, uh, it's been a, it's a, it's a collection of people over time. And the collection of patients over time, to be honest with you, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm still, uh, both inspired, but also dismayed by one particular patient who I met early on in, uh, my faculty position in Los Angeles, um, who I still talk to, I still talk to, still hear from on an annual basis, thank God, uh, and a lady who presented for an evaluation of pancreatic disease. You know, she had been around the country. I didn't really honestly think I was going to do anything dramatically different. But we did end up finding a very small uh, early lesion that was pre-invasive. And we got her to surgery and we got it resected. And it was a pre a high-grade dysplasia, pre-invasive cancer of the pancreas. And, you know, it's inspirational, uh, but it's also dismaying um, because there's really not that many cases like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we check in and she, she sends me a card and she'll send me a gift from time to time. And it's now, God knows, it's like I think we're beating, uh, you know, 15, 16 years from the event. Um, and I wish there were more events like that. So that kind of plays into it. It's like, well, God, I'd like to capture a few more people like her uh, or even more and more people like her over time. Um, and knowing that it's possible uh, is, is kind of the challenge. So kind of a long-winded answer but but there are many many things along the way that kind of inspire you to keep going well it's important though that's uh why we get up every day right and do what we do correct um having mentors or having inspirations along the way you know i i I think is is truly you know and and i know we're talking about medicine here and you know for me charitable you know philanthropy but regardless of i mean i think the world right now is in a really funny place like we we have to find inspiration we have to find positive mentors you know i i think if we all kind of did that yeah i think the world would be a lot better place james right i think we can agree on that um you know so i i think it's important um it's just very curious you know, I always ask the question and it's a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. Um, I know the reasons why I'm here, you know, from, from my own personal experience from, you know, losing my dad. And it's always curious to me, you know, to find super passionate people in this field on both sides, you know, whether they're fundraising and, you know, raising funds for various organizations, or if, you know, they're in the trenches like yourself, you know, working with patients and families, trying to find positive outcomes to this thing you know, that we're, we're, we're all battling together. So it's just fascinating to me to see like 
the path that that you lead on to and uh, maybe one day I'll write a book about the things that I've realized you know by talking to so many clinicians and survivors and and folks that are super passionate about this thing called pancreatic cancer so I want to shift gears here and I've got Again, a loaded question. Well, this is not really a loaded question, but an important question before we start talking about the work you're doing there at Yale. And maybe this is more for our audience at home. From your clinical perspective and what you do, why is pancreas disease so hard to figure out? And I know that could be, and I say pancreas disease versus pancreatic cancer because we can talk about, you know, we can, you know, there's pancreatitis, there's, you know, issues with the pancreas that, don't necessarily eventually go down that road of pancreatic cancer, but may lead to that road. So that's why I kind of, in quotation marks, air quotes here, pancreas disease versus pancreas cancer. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't want to re- rephrase your question so on and so forth, because interestingly, uh, although this might come as a shock to you, it's really not that hard to figure out in terms of understanding what's going on. And in fact, uh, one of the great things that I've kind of witnessed over the last you know, 10 or 15 years are very smart people jumping into this field from an investigative perspective. So people who are otherwise maybe looking at stomach cancer or breast cancer, realizing they wanted to study pancreatic cancer. So there's been actually a ton of work done in pancreas cancer trying to tease it apart. And so a lot of the complexity, yeah, it gets more complex, but if we have a lot more information and data about it. And what it has made us realize is, yes, um, this is a, a obviously a very complex disease, as, as are, are most diseases. You know, in order for it to evolve into a cancer, uh, you know, it might take steps over 5 to 10 to, to 15 years, um, which sounds like a very long period of time. The window that we have an opportunity to kind of figure it out might only be, you know, 6 to 12 months when it finally becomes visible or clinically apparent. Um, but really what that means to me is, you know, the, uh, the body and the pancreas have allowed these diseases to uh, evolve during that period of disease. And the response to kind of reverse the clock and send it back is not going to be a straightforward one. It's not a simple flick of the switch and turn it off. Uh, so many things go on to allow these cancers even to evolve in the first place. The body has so many protective mechanisms to prevent this from happening. But when it does finally happen, something very serious and severe has happened. And so the response to it from a treatment point of view has to be equally, I won't say severe, but equally complex. And I think that's what the issue is. Uh, I think we're used to treating, you know, diseases with one drug, antibiotics and so on and so forth. And for this, because there's so many factors involved. So I think it's, uh, I don't think it's a lack of information. It's a realization that it's an incredibly complex disease. And I think we've begun to chip a little bit away with that when we, instead of thinking about pancreatic cancer as one big, you know, it's just one one disease and one size fits all, is the realization that it's really multiple diseases that have certain maybe genetic backgrounds and makeups. And, you know, we are seeing some progress uh, when we start breaking pancreatic cancer down like that from a treatment point of view. So be it DNA repair genes or the BRCA2 genes or... Uh, you know, mutation phenotypes and so on and so forth. Uh, I think we're beginning to see that there are patients who, if you can find them, uh, we do have some weapons against it. So and that, that has come from knowledge. It's something maybe knowledge of other diseases, but it actually has also come from, you know, people just painstakingly 
teasing apart this disease over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. So I think that's from the, um, you know, from the, from the treatment side, from the other side of kind of early detection and what we know about early detection, the same thing goes on. We've begun to understand what it takes for a normal pancreas to change over into a, uh, an invasive cancer. We've understood the importance of, yes, finding it in its early stage, but really the more important thing is to find it even before it becomes a cancer. And, you know, as we try and develop the tools for that, uh, yes, it's still challenging because of the nature of where the organ is. Um, because, you know, if you do a comparison with, let's say, colon cancer, when you have somebody develop a colon cancer, yeah, it could take 10 years from the, from the time the first gene changes to develop into the small little polyp to a bigger polyp to a really big polyp and then either developing into a cancer, the polyp gets bigger. And, you know, if you're doing your screening colonoscopy, you're going to find it hopefully in those early stages and, and take care of it. Unfortunately for pancreas, it doesn't work that way. Um, and often those pre-invasive cancer lesions are very subtle and hidden in the parenchyma and might be hidden in many different areas in the parenchyma. And we're only beginning to scratch up the tools to figure that out. We don't have a simple colonoscopy type tool to say, aha, uh-huh, look, there it is, um, and work away in it. Uh, we're working towards the point of, you know, a blood test to say, look, there's something going on in this pancreas. Or we're looking at the pancreatic juice to be able to tell us, look, there's something bad going on in this pancreas. But then the challenge becomes, well, where exactly in the pancreas is it happening? Um, because, you know, again, not to make too many comparisons between colon cancer and, and pancreatic cancer, but I am a gastroenterologist. Um, you know, the idea that with the colon cancer, or at least a colon polyp, you can just snip it out. With the pancreas, it's a little bit more challenging because you're talking about surgery. Surgery is well worth it if it's an early cancer or a pre-invasive lesion, but trying to lo- localize that lesion and be certain that it's the only lesion uh, is where, where the challenge really goes. And so, you know, across the spectrum, um, one of the reasons a lot of us focus on pancreatic cysts uh, is a feeling that, yes, they are a hallmark of precursor lesions for some pancreatic cancers, uh, but they also suggest that the pancreas might be diseased under in different areas. And so we're using those pancreatic cysts as indicators or surrogate markers that there's something else going on in the pancreas. Um, but it is. It, it, is a, uh, it, is, it is challenging because of the anatomy and frankly just because of the limitations of some technology, um, but also because uh, as our as our knowledge base increases about what this disease, how it develops, how it gets to where it is, uh, the real challenge is to find the tools to kind of weaponize against it. And I think that's what, what a lot of the work is right now. Well, you, you've just given me so many good nuggets here, James, because I've been taking notes here. So I, I want to, and you said tools. So for our audience, let's define, I know there's been, and you mentioned, you know, early detection. And we're going to stay here in the pancreas space, but what define, can we define what early detection looks today in terms of, from a diagnostic standpoint for pancreas disease and pancreatic cancer in particular? So, uh, the success of early detection is would be currently defined as finding someone who has, uh, an advanced pre-invasive lesion or a very early invasive lesion and getting to the point where it could be removed 
And that patient, if they had a, an advanced pre-invasive lesion, would not then go on and develop pancreatic cancer. Or if they had an early invasive lesion, um, would have a survival benefit from having that removed. And so that is, that is the goal. That is what people would uh, define as the goal in 2020, that it's going to, revolve, it's going to involve some form of identification uh, of something, uh, hopefully those two types of entities, and then uh, surgical removal. Uh, would you like it to get to the point where we could find something, give someone a pill, and reverse the whole process? That would be even better. Yeah. Avoid surgery. Surgery is a very complex uh, entity. <clears throat> but, but in 2020, that's, w- that's where we are. So successes of early detection um, are defined in, in many ways. That's one way of defining it. Uh, the other way of defining it is that if you were to implement it, uh, whole groups of patients exposed to early detection or deemed to be successful with early detection would basically be living longer. Their outcomes would be better um, for it. And I think, you know, again, with that uh, individual case that I mentioned earlier on, that individual woman is, of course, we think she's doing better because this thing was found. Uh, we assume that if we hadn't found it, she would have probably gone on developing basic cancer. Um, and that would have been, that would have been worse. Um, but for, for a lot of people, it's, it's just sometimes it's still not entirely clear. But, uh, and so studies have to be done. Alterations and outcomes have to be done. There has to be some discussion about, wait a second, are we actually, uh, truly finding this disease early or just earlier? Um, and that even if we didn't uh, do anything, no matter what we found and no matter what we recommended for the patient, the patient would still succumb to the disease. And unfortunately, uh, as you know, with patients with established pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, <coughs> excuse me, who, who undergo surgery, unfortunately, the vast majority of them still uh, pass away from pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And so are we removing the disease? Uh, are we just changing kind of the time intervals? And it's, a, it's a pretty controversial area. So in 2020, what we are trying to do is, is both. Yes, we are happy if we find um, early cancers. Currently, you know, 15, 20% of all patients presenting with pancreatic cancer have surgically resectable disease. We believe that by offering them surgery, we're improving their overall odds of survival. But what we're also interested in finding are the pre-invasive uh, lesions that if you didn't remove them, would go on and develop cancer in the next, you know, five years or so on and so forth. And by removing them and having patients successfully get through surgery would then result in those patients uh, living a normal, healthy life. I mean, that really would be the goal, as it is the goal with other types of early detection for, uh, for other diseases. And hence the emphasis... Um, on pancreatic cysts, hence the emphasis on imaging with combinations of MRI scanning and endoscopic ultrasound for patients who've got pancreatic cysts or patients who are felt to be at high risk because of genetics uh, or because of uh, family histories of pancreatic cancer in the hope of finding those sorts of lesions. But it's a challenge. It really is a challenge to try and find you know, we don't want to we don't want to remove anything that just blinks at us in the pancreas because pancreatic surgery, you know, you can get by without your pancreas, but if you could hang on to it, you'd rather hang on to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we don't we don't want to be removing unnecessary uh, things that really would never bother a patient, and so that fine line uh, between 
following patients in surgery is really a fine line uh, and a real challenge. Yeah, I think what you know what you just said was pretty powerful, though. I, I have to say, you know, when we think about early detection, you know, there's a there's a way where, you know, it would be great if we had a pill, right, to just eliminate the cancer. And and I've always said I don't think we, you know, since I've been doing this now ten years, I don't I, I don't think I've ever promised anyone that we were going to end pancreatic cancer completely. You know, our mission is a world without it. Uh, but I think that looks a little bit differently in, in in terms of, you know, eliminating it versus managing it really, really well. And I think early detection is, you know, in my mind, you know, where we can find these cancers early on. And right now, with the options that we have, you know, surgery is is the one option that we know we can eliminate it. But as you said, in a lot of those cases, uh, the cancer does come back and we just don't understand why that happens. But, you know, maybe we can move that timeline forward a bit for a lot of these families. And as I've always said, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this from other people, you know, the longer that these patient families are, are in the game fighting and have a fighting chance, the likelihood of something, you know, happening like a clinical trial that potentially could be a game changer for these families fighting uh, that potentially could, you know, put them on a different type of trajectory, you know, with the disease. So it's, it's really fascinating, um, you know, all the things that are happening and, and there is a lot, you know, to, to quote you, what you said before, there's a lot of people chipping away at it, which is really exciting. You know, I know we kind of hit a, a bump in the road here with COVID with the labs being closed and patient populations, not necessarily going to centers for treatment, but a lot of that has kind of revved back up. And I know people are going back to centers labs are reopened. Um, you know, I just feel like there was a ton of momentum in the beginning of the year of, of great things that were happening. And then we kind of hit this bump in the road, but we'll get back to where we were prior to COVID, uh, hopefully sooner than later. I want to talk, James, a little bit about the work you guys are doing at Yale. And, uh, you know, you've been there for quite some time, uh, seven years now. And I know you guys have done a lot of work already with kind of the genetics piece. So for audience listening at home, can you talk a little bit about what you guys are doing, you know, in the early detection space specifically for, you know, pancreas disease? Sure. It's really been um, kind of a multi-pronged approach. Uh one of the most important things I think that we were able to do, and you know, even before I got there, Yale had a very well-established um, multidisciplinary program between surgery and GI and, and medical oncology, um, was on the uh, diagnostic front to bring both surgeons and radiologists and gastroenterologists into one room to review imaging, because imaging is, is really a key to early detection good evaluation of scans, improving the quality of scans, and so on and so forth. So so now we have a weekly multidisciplinary pancreas conference where we basically review um, patients that we, we see in our clinics, patients that are involved in studies. And, you know, even though it sounds kind of very, very straightforward, it is a critical part of ensuring that the information that we have gleaned and the standards that we want to kind of uphold in pancreatic disease are maintained uh, so that we don't lose the benefit of that. And so that's one key aspect um, that I think is kind of important to our early detection initiative uh, for discussion. The second part of it has been uh, the development of early detection projects, clinical research studies. And 
you know, a lot of this, yes, could be done necessarily uh, outside of the structure. A lot of the current imaging could be done outside of the structure. But we've chosen um, to use clinical studies really to develop this. And I've seen the progress that has happened with other high-risk clinical studies over the years and strongly feel that this is the way, the way to do it. And so we are uh, a member of several uh, early detection high-risk initiatives, including Precede now, which you alluded to earlier mm-hmm. on. And, you know, most patients when offered uh, the opportunity to be part of a clinical study and realize that it's not, it is about them, but it's not just about them and that it has implications for their family and future generations, are really happy to embrace uh, research and the knowledge that comes from that. The third aspect that I think is uh, is equally important and is really one of Yale's uh, strengths is that Yale has very strong uh, basic science and uh, the word is translational type of research initiatives. So there are many, 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 many people at Yale who are very good at understanding diseases at a cellular level, at an organ level. And I think we have begun to reach more out to these people uh, at Yale and develop collaborations with them and encourage them into the pancreas fold uh, to maybe turn their expertise towards uh, pancreatic cancer. So one example is the immune system. How do cancers develop? How do they evade the immune system when they're starting off? Your immune system there is just is there to, to knock it out whenever the pancreas wants to start misbehaving, but ultimately it misbehaves. And so the people who know that field very well are immunologists and immunobiologists. And Yale just so happens to have some of the world's truly greatest. And I, I, I know I'm kind of uh, waving a bit of a flag, but they truly are uh, a great and expert bunch of people. And so we're very fortunate to work with them and encourage them. And so, some of them have kind of have dedicated a good chunk of their time to now studying pancreatic disease. And so over the last couple of years, all these initiatives have, have been occurring. Uh, we now have a, a, a more of a critical mass of people at all different levels, at both clinical, at translational, uh, but particularly at the basic science research level, who understand what the challenges of pancreatic cancer are and are trying to add their expertise to it to, yes, help and collaborate with other people around the country, but also to develop maybe new new avenues. And so we are hoping that some of the knowledge that will come from this uh, will give us insight. So again, I mentioned immunology, another uh, important area that is an implication for pancreatic cancer and early detection is the effect of obesity and the effect of metabolic syndrome and diabetes on uh, cancers in general, but particularly on pancreatic cancer. And so those programs, they take, these take time to set up and evolve, but there are now investigators who are committed almost primarily to studying obesity, the role of diet, and so on and so forth, and just pancreatic cancer. So I think those are the sorts of things that um, we're excited about. Uh, there's obviously a lot more going on. There's, as I said before, there's you know great surgical care, there's great clinical care, there's great uh, medical oncology care and, and GI care and all the disciplines. Um, the last thing that I would just kind of tout out is uh, we've had the ability to set up uh, an early detection or a pancreatic cancer early detection clinic, um, which basically brings together the disciplines of genetic counselors, gastroenterology, uh, as well as imaging um, to to advise patients 
about their risk for developing pancreatic cancer, primarily through their familial risk or the genetics uh, risk, but ultimately we would hope to extend that to, to pancreatic cysts. And in the age of telehealth and the age of COVID, um, it's been a very gratifying experience. So uh, this morning we spent some time you know, with patients going over telehealth. We have an educational material that we share with patients and you know, it's a, it's a clinic-like experience, but it's done via telehealth uh, and so far has been very effective. And so that's run under the auspices of the uh, Smilo Cancer Hospital, um, but it's been in, in full operation now for about a year or so. And overall, both from a clinical perspective, but also from a research perspective, um, very satisfying. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'll... I'll... You know, and we're we're excited to have you on board with Precede, and and naturally, I've seen you know as we said in the beginning of the the podcast, you guys are so close. And full disclosure, my dad was at Yale for for some time during his treatment, and my mom, you know, being a two time breast cancer survivor, um, has been a Yale patient twice. So I, I've seen firsthand from a family, you know, the, the expertise and, and the resources that are there. And it is exciting that things are moving. And I mean, I know the immunology team there is world renowned. And, and you've also got a guy there at senior leadership, Charlie Fuchs, um, you know, who's world renowned in the, in the pancreas space, you know, who's been at the helm there at the cancer center at Yale for a couple years now. And, and so there's some really, really great things happening at Yale and, and we're excited uh, not only to be so close and to continue to build on our relationship, uh, but also to have you guys in precede. So I want to just spend a minute or two, Jim and, and, and James, I should say, apologize um, for calling you Jim there, is uh, to talk a little bit about Precede. And I know you guys are also part of the, the CAPS consortium, which is, is similar. Um, so I, I think, you know, these big projects are, are probably not something foreign to you, but, you know, where do you see the success of these large scale consortium type efforts for early detection? So uh, the nature of the challenges and the nature of early detection for pancreatic cancer, you know, means that different groups in different uh, faculties are kind of working away uh, on understanding diseases. And then every once in a while, a breakthrough comes by an understanding and it needs to be applied when it has an idea. And you can't really start the clock then because... It takes time to set up clinical studies. It sets time, time to find certain types of patients. They almost have to be waiting. We have to be kind of ready and waiting somewhere uh, for these initiatives and these new findings. And so um, the consortia that are out there fulfill many, many goals. Um, and one of it is the bringing together of uh, like-minded investigators who have a sense of where the field is, where the field is going, how to get it there, and to share those sorts of ideas, to share novel ideas, novel insights, not to make the same mistakes as were made in the past. So it's great to have kind of experienced people in the field so they can kind of say, let's not go that route, let's go this route. Uh, and so that only really happens when you have large consortia together as opposed to the opposite, which would be everybody in their own little silo trying to think that they're going to do it themselves and figure it out themselves. And uh, if there's one thing we've kind of learned, even from uh, the current COVID experience, is that we're all in this together. This is an issue of us kind of grouping together, 
uh, for the greater good of the patients and the disease that they're, they're at risk or afflicted with. So consortia fulfill many roles. From a practical point of view, um, there are evolutions in blood-based testing. There are some evolutions in imaging, be it with CAT scans or MRI scans. And the benefit of the consortia it will allow us to study and implement some of these tests on larger scales of populations all at once. Uh, Yale, for, for all the good and great things that are going on there right now, cannot do this alone, nor can any of the you know, great institutions that you've mentioned earlier on. We have to do it together. Um, I have personally witnessed, as I said before, that these things take time. Uh, they can take five years, they can take 10 years, but there are these incremental changes in understanding of disease and then uh, patient outcomes. So how we manage pancreatic cysts now is completely different than how we manage pancreatic cysts uh, 10, 15 years ago. And that's due to groups getting together and talking it out and sharing, uh, sharing experiences. So these things do take time. It's not for uh, those folks looking for instantaneous gratification. We're in this for the long haul. As I say, we're a fairly committed bunch of people, um, you know, in this. Um, having worked with uh, the group uh, CAPS previously and currently working with them, you know, I'm able to see the new genetic markers that we didn't test for 10, 15 years ago. And as I tell patients, but because of their participation in studies, we got a greater understanding of certain uh, markers that could be used in certain mutations in, in blood. And that only came from doing large number data studies, such as a CAP study or a precede study. So it's not necessarily the story of, aha, uh -huh, we have the answer, we're just going to go for it. This is an evolving process, and we are constantly updating our information, and we are constantly trying to be ready. Uh, it's a bit like um, you know, work, working with the COVID scenario right yeah. now, we're all hopeful that there'll be a vaccine and we're all hopeful that it'll work and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of groundwork that goes into it, including the basics of, I see, making the little glass bottles to vials to hold the vaccine. So, you know, that's the sort of way we think about this. It's not that there is a, you know, we're just working on one blood test or one imaging study. Um, there will be multiple blood tests. There are multiple imaging approaches. It might not even be CT scan. It might not even be MRI. It could be, you know, PET scan imaging. Uh, but people are working away on that. But as a larger group of people who are interested in tackling pancreatic disease, um, we have to be aware. We have to talk to each other. We have to collaborate. We have to pool resources. We have to avoid making the mistakes of the past. We have to understand the limitations of the disease. There are so many facets of this, and no one group will do it. Uh, but groups together will do it. You said it perfectly, James. I, I think that just taking notes here, there's strength in numbers, right? And so there's there's so right. much strength to be held together when there's a collaborative group working together, sharing information, sharing data. And I've always said, like, we will never be the group, but maybe we'll be the group that forces the group that does it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, we, we can use our strengths, which is bringing people together and helping to build these things and, and evolving this thing. I've got Two questions left here, and one of them is pretty easy, which is our last one, um, which we're going to share with our audience. But the one before that, if we have families listening, and whether they reside in Connecticut or, or somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world, because we do have an international audience that I know listens to this podcast, 
What should these families know about early detection when it relates to pancreatic disease slash cancer? And I know that's a bit of a loaded question and that can go, we can expand on that, but let's talk about it in essence of, you know, we've got families that have been impacted by the disease. What are some of the things that they should be thinking about or they should know when it comes to early detection and maybe reaching out, learning more, talking to you or talking to other specialists around the world? So there are implications for family members of, uh, of patients who have succumbed to the disease or have the disease of pancreatic cancer. And it's important for people to be aware of them and get guidance and advice. And you know, as I said previously, a lot of the information we have right now is new compared to 10 years ago. It's, there's a lot of new uh, blood work and germline mutations that we didn't talk about 10 years ago that we talk about now. So I think family members need to be aware that, um, yes, the vast majority of pancreatic cancer, we think, is so-called sporadic, meaning it's something in the environment. Is it smoking? Is it obesity? Is it diet? It's something. But there's a group of patients with pancreatic cancer, maybe of the order of maybe 10% or 15%, who their risk factor for pancreatic cancer is something in the family. And that information may be in genes. It might be a shared environmental issue, but it puts them at higher risk. And you know, often there's only one family member, but if you start scratching a little bit, sometimes you'll find two family members. Sometimes there's three family members. And the more family members there are, the more concerning it is. If there's family histories of other cancers, like breast cancer, prostate cancer, it just raises the suspicion. This is maybe not just about the environment. So families need to be aware of that. They need to be aware that there is a familial risk. And the best way to start is to reach out to a local center that has an interest or an expertise in this area to get a, a, an insight into what the next steps are. Should it be imaging? Should it be genetic counseling? Should it be enrollment in a clinical trial? And that area is constantly changing. So I would kind of advise people that if they, the last time they did that was five years ago, it's time to think about doing it again to see if there's any updated information. Some of the genetic tests we did 10 years ago are now outdated and so on and so forth. So this is a rapidly evolving area and people need to kind of stay in touch. When people come to Yale, for example, and they're just have expressed a concern about pancreatic cancer, it's in their family. And if, if we tell them that, well, strictly speaking, you know, you're, you're at risk, but you're not at a very high risk. We tell them we're going to stay in touch with you and you're going to stay in touch with us. And if things change, we're going to reach out to you. And if things change on your side with respect to a family history, um, you will reach out to us. So this is an ongoing dialogue. I think people need to be aware where those centers are in their immediate environment. Most places in the country now um, um, have access to these uh, sorts of centers. And certainly I can help, as I'm sure you can help uh, get people to their local centers as well. So I think people need to know that there is information there's expertise out there. There are guidelines that tell us what to do. We don't promise to have all the answers. We don't promise to have all the solutions, but we can give guidance to people. And, you know, we're still hoping that we'll have a better blood test. We'll have better imaging. It might be five years. Maybe it'll impact family members. Maybe it'll impact family family members, you know, in 10 or 15 years time. But, but that's our horizon. Powerful stuff. Last question, um, and I know you just mentioned a bit of it. Um, if someone listening, and let's say they've heard something, they want to talk to you, they could be from anywhere in the country or someone here locally in Connecticut, you know, has a family history of pancreas 
disease, pancreatic cancer, and they want to learn more about the study and, and everything you're doing there at Yale, where's the best place for people to find more? So I would probably direct them to um, the Yale uh, Pancreas Cancer Early Detection Clinic, which is part of the Smilo Cancer Early Detection Cancer Genetics Program. Um, and that's available through the Smilo Cancer uh, website. Uh, there's also a website that's www.pancreas.yale.edu that will ultimately get you to that. Um, I'm happy to hand out email addresses and phone numbers, but if we start with that, I think that would be um, would be reasonable. No matter where you live, any in the country, doesn't have to be Connecticut. I'm always happy um, to to answer people's questions and their concerns. I think when there's a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer in anybody's family, it's very alarming. Uh, and we certainly try and give advice to take care of the patient to begin with. But ultimately, when the dust settles, there are implications for family members, and we try to get that message out. So um, I would probably direct people towards that first. I'm happy uh, offline, or if you want to put it with the podcast, to give out um, uh, email addresses for, uh, for direct contact as well. Awesome. I think the website's the best resource. And naturally, you know, with the word wide, World Wide Web, uh, you can uh, Google Dr. James Farrell at Yale and you'll, your profile yeah. will come up as well. So I think that's a perfect place for people to go. Dr. Farrell, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for all you do. We're excited to have you and, and the team as part of the Pre-Seed Consortium something that we're doing here at Project Purple for early detection of pancreatic cancer. We're excited to see where it goes. I know Yale's on board here. You've got your IRB in-house, so we'll start to see patients come on board in the database, and we'll start to see some great things happening from the Pre-Seed Consortium. And thank you for all you do. Um, as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you heard today, Please share us and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and until next time, be safe. Yeah.